When you take a test to get a driver's license, one of the things that you have to do is accurately identify road signs. Some of them have clearly written words on them. Stop, of course, means stop. But others aren't quite so clear. You have to learn how to interpret road signs, their shape, their color, the words on them. What should you do based on any given road sign that you come to? You have to know. Jesus' miracles were signs that drew lots of attention. Everyone was amazed, but not everyone understood what they meant. Miracles are signs that don't explain themselves. They point to something bigger, something deeper, something greater than themselves. And the same was true for the miracles that the apostles did. We're looking at Acts chapter 3 tonight, and it opens with a stunning miracle. But the important question is, what did it mean? What or who was it pointing to? And what should the people do in response? Our passage tonight, in that passage, Peter will make sure that the crowd knows what power made that miracle happen and that it was meant to point to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what response was needed. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith in Jesus. You'll be helped to have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 3 if you don't already have them open. And as we move through the sermon, at the end of the evening, I want you to walk away committed to trust in the power of Jesus Christ and the restoration that he promises. That's really the big idea. I want you to trust in the power of Jesus Christ and the restoration that he promises. Now at the end of chapter 2, Luke, the writer of Acts, he tells us in verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so as we move into chapters 3 and then even into 4, it's giving us a detailed account of just one of those miracles and the events that happened as a result of it. It's, it's the only miracle performed by the apostles in Jerusalem that we learn about in any detail. Now the first point this evening is the powerful Christ, the power of Jesus Christ. And we see that in verses 1 through 16. Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and they encountered a man who was lame from birth. And in chapter 4, next week, we're going to learn that he has been lame for more than 40 years. 40 years this man has not been able to walk. Now he's begging here at this gate. He's asking for alms. That's the term for it. And that's, of course, how he supported himself. In the law and through, throughout the prophets of the Old Testament, God had commanded the Israelites to take care of the poor. Peter and John stop in front of the man, and they call him to look at them. And then Peter issues a command that's become known the world around, and we see it in verse 6. 
I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. If you have children, you probably taught them children's songs about this verse right here. Now the man must have had some faith in what Peter had said because he reached out his hand to receive Peter's helping hand to get him to stand up. Now remember, again, this man had never walked in his life. He's always been carried wherever he goes. He would have no sense of balance already. But because of this miracle, not only is he able to stand on his feet, but he's able to begin leaping and jumping and walking. And that's what we see in those next verses. There had been no request for healing from the man and, and then no hesitation on Peter's part. This was just a, a gracious healing miracle of God. He asked for money, but he received a life-changing healing instead. What God gives us in the gospel is far, far more than you or I knew what to ask for when we came to Christ. It was far more. Now, everyone knew this man. For decades, he'd been begging at the temple gate. And just like when the Holy Spirit had caused the disciples to spill out into the streets, speaking in languages that they didn't know, an astonished crowd gathers around Peter and John and the man, and they gather in a place called Solomon's Portico. Now that was an enormous outdoor part of the temple complex where the new church was frequently gathering to hear the apostles' teaching. The crowd are staring and probably pointing to Peter and John, but Peter was determined to point to Christ. Now, after addressing the crowd and their obvious thoughts that it had been perhaps Peter and John by whose power the miracle had, was performed, Peter goes on to refer first to God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, he says. And then Peter continues in verse 13. He says, this God glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied. You denied the holy and righteous one, he goes on. Peter's using language about God and about the Messiah pulled from the Old Testament that would have been familiar to the Israelites. Of course, if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he's the God of covenant promises. Those were the first three men who received the covenant promises and passed them on to their children. God refers to himself that way when he met Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus. Now remember this reference to the God of covenant promises because it's going to show up again at the end of our passage. He then goes on and he uses the term holy one and righteous one. Now those names are repeated often in the prophet Isaiah. And like on the day of Pentecost, Peter reminds them that they asked for a murderer to be released, Barabbas, and instead had Jesus, who was innocent, killed. They participated in it. He goes on and he says, you killed the author of life, <laughs> which is an amazing phrase. But what happens when you kill the author of life? 
Well, the author of life doesn't stay dead. He rises. Now, Peter answers the question at the very end. How was this man healed? And Peter makes it plain. Look with me at verse 16. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter and John saw a need, and they met that need and used it as an opportunity to share the good news about Jesus. Now, you and I aren't necessarily healing 40-year-old lame people day in and day out, week in and week out. At least none of you all have told me about that, and I would like to hear about it if you do. But that model of seeing opportunities to share Christ at opportune times is something that we should imitate. When we bless someone with financial help or when we serve someone with our time or our energy, we can give praise to God and not draw attention to ourselves, just like Peter and John did. They pointed to Christ. Philippians says, it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so when we do someone good, we can give praise to God and bring him glory in that way and not draw attention to ourselves. Especially when we do that for people who are not Christians. Maybe a simple, God has been kind to me, so I want to be kind to others. That's something you could say. Or when you do something for someone to say, Jesus has served me by forgiving my sins, the least I can do is serve other people around me. Maybe that'll start a conversation that would lead to you being able to share the gospel with someone. We can learn to give credit to Christ and not take credit ourselves for the good things that Jesus does through us. Now, an important thing to notice in Peter's explanation here in verse 16 is the phrase, in his name, or faith in his name. Jesus Christ's power was displayed in this man's healing because of faith in his name. And when the Bible speaks about a name, it means more than just what we mean when we speak about a name. It's more than just what would go on a name tag, what you call someone. A person's name means their reputation their authority. It's, it's about the power that they have. That's their name. It's all wrapped up in that. And also we should know that in the name or even in the name of Jesus is not a magic formula. It's not a magic spell that we say. And then God is kind of forced to do what we ask because we said in the name of Jesus. That's not how it works. In his name means according to the authority and purposes of Jesus, according to the authority and purposes of Jesus. That's how we pray. We pray in line with his purposes and we pray in line with his power and authority. Do you trust in the authority and power of King Jesus? Have you put your faith in his authority and his kingship? And if you have, your life will reflect that. Your life will show it. This man's great physical need was powerfully provided for 
by Jesus and his power. But his healing was a sign that points to something greater than this powerful Christ offers, that this powerful Christ offers, and that is promised restoration. That's the second point this evening, promised restoration. We see that in verses 17 through 26. Jesus offers powerful healing to some, but he offers a thorough restoration to every person who will turn and put their faith and trust in him. And not only does it, he offer it to people, but Jesus is promising in the gospel for restoration for the entire creation. That's Jesus' mission. Restoration, or what we often call salvation, of course, for individuals. But first, Peter points out their need for restoration. A person needs to know that they need to be restored before they call out to Christ for it. Peter says, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. He says that in verse 17. Now, it's important to stop for just a moment and point out that sins committed in ignorance are still sins that we're responsible for. Ignorance is not innocence. We're responsible for them because our ignorance is a result of our sinful nature. We're not even aware of all of our sins because we're sinners. We're, we're dull and we're deadened spiritually by sin. We don't even recognize sin in all its forms. But we will be held accountable for them. If you're not a Christian, I want you to think about that for just a moment. You're being held accountable by a holy God for all your sins, even the sins you are not even aware of that you've committed. Just because your ignorance of sinful thoughts and actions doesn't excuse sin. Now, if that's the case, is there any possible way that you are in the right with God? I think not. But Peter had a message of hope. And at this point, Peter begins to present the good news of Jesus Christ that was promised by God and foretold by all the prophets, he said, but missed by the Israelites. The Christ would suffer. And God fulfilled that in his plan for Jesus to go to the cross. Now, Peter's instruction for gaining access to what this crucified and risen Messiah offers comes next in verse 17. What does he say? Repent, therefore, and turn back. He's saying, change your ways. Return to the God of the covenant in the way you live your lives. Now, if a person does that, what do they gain? Well, Peter lays out the gracious benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, he says, there's the forgiveness of sins. Sins are blotted out, he says. You know, think about a stain in your clothing and you take a, a towel or a, a washcloth and you, you try to blot that stain out. That's what God does with our sins. He takes them away. God promised throughout the Old Testament that he would forgive the sins of his people, those who repented and turned to him in faith. Isaiah 43, 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will remember your sins no more. 
Have mercy on me, O God, says Psalm 51.1, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Second, Peter goes on, it says in verse 20, he says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That was for the present as well. It's likely that this refers to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that gives the believer peace and hope, deep contentment and assurance of salvation. Those things are refreshing in the deepest way. And fourth, our salvation doesn't just include forgiveness and the indwelling spirit. It includes as well the return of Christ for us. Verse 20, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, this is a part of the gospel promise that Jesus is coming back for us. And fourth, our salvation doesn't just include forgiveness, the indwelling spirit, the promise of Christ's return for us. He promises the restoration of all things, not only to us, but for all of creation. Look at verse 21. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Brothers and sisters, the gospel promises are enormous. They are expansive. They are greater than you can imagine, though you should keep trying to imagine them and discover them. Jesus' mission is to make all things new. All things. And he's starting with people. The forgiveness of sins is just the beginning of the gracious gifts that God has in store for those of you who have put your trust and faith in Jesus. Do you see how the restoration of the man's feet and legs were just a sign of the multitude of people and things that God had promised to restore through faith in Jesus? What amazing good news we sinners have been given through Jesus. Christian, the gospel is so, so full of benefits and blessings that you will never exhaust its bounty. Don't stop exploring what we've been promised in the gospel. You won't reach the depths of it in this life. And if you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here to hear what amazing things God has promised to those who turn in faith to his son Jesus. Why would you want to turn away from all of this that Christ offers? Why would you refuse this remarkable hope and future and remain in your sin and rejection of him? Why? Trust in him today. Peter's mention of how all the prophets promised Jesus's or promised God's Messiah is there in our text. And beginning in verse 22, he covers some of the greatest, some of the greatest prophets. First, there's Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses had prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him one day that all the people should listen to that prophet. There's just a few places in the Bible which Muslim writers claim predict the coming of Muhammad. And this is one of them. 
But Deuteronomy 18 is about Jesus. It's about Jesus, not Muhammad. Not only is it an encouragement, this verse from Deuteronomy, to listen to Jesus, but it's also a warning. If anyone doesn't listen to the instructions and words of Jesus, he shall be destroyed from the people. Brothers and sisters, this is a stark and strong warning that faith in Jesus is the only way to inherit the gracious promises of God. Do you take Jesus' words seriously? Were you listening to Jesus' words this week in Scripture? Were you trying to live by them? Next, he lists the prophet Samuel. And last, he returns to the prophet Abraham and the very first promises that God made in the first book in the Old Testament, Genesis. All the families of the earth would be blessed by Abraham's offspring. And that offspring's name is Jesus. Peter's closing appeal is there in verse 26. Look at it with me. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Jesus is the suffering servant of the Lord spoken of in Isaiah. Jesus is the risen Savior that these apostles are bearing witness to. Have you noticed how many titles there are for Jesus in this passage as well? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah of God. He's the servant of God. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the author of life. He's the prophet that Moses predicted. He's the offspring of Abraham, sent to bless the families of the earth. And throughout this passage, we see that Jesus is the Lord of history. The references to Jesus start in the first book of the Bible, and they stretch into the future. What a Messiah. What a Savior. Jesus is the powerful Christ of God who promises glorious restoration for those who turn from their wickedness, those who turn to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus. We praise you that we have evidence of the coming of Jesus in all of the prophets and all of the Old Testament, and we have evidence in the testimony of the apostles as well. Lord, we see evidence in our midst as well, and we praise you for that. May we be witnesses for you as well. In Christ's name.